Hello, welcome back to the Meraki Unboxed podcast. Great to have you with us once again. My name's Simon Thompson, host of the show. And this is a podcast that we love to run every couple of weeks. And we always like to bring in as much interesting content as we can of different types. So as you know, we do quite a few around the technology themselves. We last time had a conversation with folks at Meraki who look after some of our employee communities and what they do on that side of things. And there really is like a whole bunch of useful content already stacked up in the Meraki Unbox archive. So if you are interested in what we do in this business, I definitely recommend you go back and have a listen to that. For 38 episodes, I think, in the bag. So this is number 39. Now at Meraki, we love to focus on the communities who use our technology in one way or another. And I tend to think of two really big chunks there. So first of all, we've got those network engineers, folks out there who are building real networks and security environments with our technology. The other big group is a very interesting one that we've featured a couple of times on the podcast already, which is our technology partner community. So these are the folks who are really taking the Meraki platform and everything that it's capable of and really taking it to the next level by plugging in using those APIs that we have across the board, across our portfolio, and really starting to build some custom solutions on top of that, which uh, really address some real pain points out in the real world. And in a way that, you know, the Meraki team is not able to do ourselves. So we're super happy to have these tech partners working with us. And this is something which I think is a very exciting area that uh, we're very keen to see how it develops over time. And today uh, we're bringing in another technology partner to talk to us. And so I'm really excited to get into this conversation because it's a fascinating use case, especially this year. Uh, and so with that, let's get it over to David. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Really pleased to be here. And so tell us what you do and about your organization. Sure. My name's David Owens. I'm the CEO of Every Angle. And Every Angle are a recently launched to market Meraki technology partner that focuses exclusively in the field of computer vision. In short order, we build computer vision applications for the Meraki MV smart camera platform. We don't work with any other vendor and we deliver our solutions to customers exclusively in partnership with the uh, Cisco reseller channel. Awesome. And you said recent. So how long have you been in this game? So we will be one year old in four days. Oh, that's so So we're still in our infancy. Where we're at now is where we thought we might be in four to five years. It's just been stellar in terms of the reaction and uptake and advocacy and promotion that we've really been fortunate to receive from everyone at Cisco and Meraki and the partner community. Wow. Sounds like you obviously arrived at exactly the right moment. It's that dream scenario for anybody starting a business. Tell us about how you came into existence. Like, Why did you choose this technology to build a business around? Yeah, um, that's a really interesting question. And I think, you know, sometimes when you read business books and leaders and they're telling about their story and there's, there's these lovely kind of coach and explanations of how everything mm. was kind of clinical and linear and so on. That's not the case. This has been the case of many, many a pivot. Um, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur, which sounds impressive, but you could really substitute that as saying kind of serial you know, person who fails at a lot of stuff right. uh, quickly. Um, and so how, how it came about with every angle was my previous business was managed service provider business. We did a lot of work with Meraki, particularly in the retail space, food service operators and so on. And so we knew a lot around Meraki. We were watching when Meraki entered the smart camera space several years ago. 
And around about two and a half years ago, when GDPR in Europe, General Data Protection Regulation, was in its infancy, there was a lot of customers at that stage who were contacting us saying, hey, what do we do around GDPR? And all of their inquiries were very much around the data they were capturing on email marketing systems and things like this. And none of them had any awareness around the absolute multitude of CCTV cameras that were everywhere, awash with all of this data. And so our original idea was thinking, well, wouldn't it be great if we could offer some kind of managed smart camera service using the Meraki smart camera platform? But Mm. very, very quickly, when we started drilling down into that, we realized that actually the real potential to create value there was in leveraging the cameras as a platform for outcome-specific software applications to deliver on top of it. Mm, Okay. So you mentioned um, GDPR there. And I I guess, I mean, we have, I like to think of the Meraki Unboxed podcast as a global affair. So um, tell us a little bit more about that specifically and its relationship to what you're doing. I haven't called it out. So we're based in Dublin in Ireland, but we operate globally, thanks to the scale and reach of Cisco. So in terms of GDPR, one of the things we made a decision on very early on, and it was a luxury really as a startup, but really a necessity, I think, in the space of computer vision was to have a full-time GDPR and data protection consultant as part of our team. I would say I've had more conversations around GDPR and data privacy than I have had hot dinners right in the past year. And it's understandable, but there is a real confusion out there and there's a lot of misunderstanding and it is quite understandable why people are confused. You're seeing, I suppose, the rise of a sense of value being placed on your own personal information Mm. and that's being exercised by different sections of society, quite rightly, more and more so. And I think what you've seen with GDPR as introduced in Europe has been influencing and has been upping the bar in a good way in terms of data privacy globally. And you can see that in terms of the California Privacy Act. You can see that in terms of data privacy in Australia, New Zealand. And it's the pendulum is only swinging one way when it goes to privacy. And I think much like with security, when you're doing anything in the computer vision space, security can't be an afterthought. Security is not something you add on at the end and privacy is not something you tack on at the end. If you're not building applications with privacy by design, Mm -hmm. you're not building applications that are going to be able to comply with this higher and higher bar of privacy, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, it definitely sounds as though you take that very seriously, you understand its importance to people and think really actively thinking about how your technology can respect that pendulum and the swinging of the pendulum, as you you said there. Absolutely, I would agree. It's just going in that one direction. I'm really keen to get back into the computer vision conversation. But just before we get there, let's just think about the technology partner aspect to it and how that came about. So obviously, you chose at some point to become a technology partner with Meraki. Uh, And tell us a little bit about that experience, that journey, and why you see it as beneficial to your own operation. I think the first thing I would say is it's tough to become a technology partner, but in a good way. What I mean is it's not just a question of like, I have an app, I submit a form to become a Meraki technology partner and hey, presto, it's there. There is a proper full-on validation process Mm -hmm. and we spent some period of time going through that. But the reason why I said that's a good thing is it genuinely is a badge that you should wear with pride and equally that customers and other reseller partners should have trust and place value on. 
why did we do it as a startup you're always focused on how are you going to scale mm-hmm. how are you going to scale technically how are you going to scale from a commercial standpoint and looking at the installed customer base that cisco has in general looking at meraki in terms of just how well it engages mm-hmm. with end customers and then seeing marketplace as a vehicle to be able to really just spread the word of what you're doing in a very very scalable low touch manner was massively appealing. The irony is we, aside from a few t-shirts, roll-up banners, and one or two other things like that, we've not spent $1 on marketing, not one. Wow. What we have done is spent an inordinate amount of time building personal relationships with key folks in Meraki, the Meraki Marketplace team, and working with them and saying, you know, how can we co-create success here? Mm -hmm. Which might sound a bit cliche, but if you really buy into that, it's like you're all in or you're not in at all. And so we've really invested heavily in trying to expose everything that we do into Meraki Marketplace. And it takes time. I'm not going to lie. It's not like you put your app in there and then the very next day, there's this treasure trove of inquiries that come in but you keep at it and you start building up this momentum. And that's exactly where we're at now, kind of 12 months on. Wow. And, you know, it's all consistent with what you were saying about the whole entrepreneurial aspect. And I definitely respect anybody, whether they fail multiple times or not, it really doesn't matter. It's part of the game, I think. And it's the persistence that really sets entrepreneurs apart from the rest of us. I include myself in the rest of us. It is very respectable, I think. And this willingness to sort of stick with things and sort of help it to grow over time. And of course, it's fantastic for us to be able to see that happening with those tech partners, because of course, it shows how you can take this technology and really do something innovative and useful with it. So that's very exciting to me. I agree. I mean, you're being very kind when you say persistence. I think a lot of people would say just bloody minded stubbornness, (laughs) right? It's probably a good way of putting it, you know, okay, like, has he not got it yet? He's kind of making that mistake again. I'm a a marketer. I'm always putting a positive spin on things, David. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm just, I'll dice it with an element of reality. But I think the other thing though, to call out and I think to recognize is just how entrepreneurial Meraki is as an organization. Mm-hmm. It's surprisingly easy as a startup or a scale out to work with Meraki. I would say if Meraki and the people in Meraki see value, see innovation in what you're doing and you're trying to remove obstacles and remove friction, it's a tremendously supportive community of people to work with. That's great to hear. And it is obviously a part of our mission to enable others to pursue theirs. And I think the actual mission statement is worded slightly more eloquently than that, but that's essentially <laughs> what it comes down to. And, you know, we definitely formed our business around as much agility as possible. And trying to keep it that way as you scale is challenging, but I think it's really refreshing to hear your comments there and it shows that it's definitely possible for anybody to really get started on this journey and take it to wherever its logical conclusion is. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, so let's get into Every Angle's technology approach. And I guess the first thing around this is this term computer vision that you talked about. Tell me how you describe computer vision and when you would use it. Good question. How would I describe it? I would say it is around helping human beings understand whether something different is happening. Now, that could be different good or it could be different bad. That's it at its simplest level. And being able to do that in an autonomous manner at scale. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is as opposed to using human vision to watch for something and to have to do that kind of ad nauseum where you're really 
saddling intelligent beings with what can be quite monotonous right. work. As an example, so in a retail space, it could be you know, around loss prevention. You're trying to identify, you know, is somebody putting something into a basket they're not paying for it? Or is it, you know, somebody not wearing a hard hat walking into an industrial site and there could be an accident? Removing the need for human beings to do that work and being able to apply a level of rigor to that form of inspection so that you've got consistency right. in terms of inspection and you've therefore got predictability in terms of analysis and alert. And that might sound quite highfalutin, but you're taking all of that and then what at least what we try and do is shrink wrap that in ready to consume productized apps that you can deploy literally within a couple of minutes it's got fixed pricing. So it's it's easy to understand what the application does because it's relevant to you in your business, in your industry. It's easy to understand if it represents good value for not because the pricing and licensing is very simple and it's easy to start using it. Mm-hmm. And if you do all of those things, then pretty quickly you can figure out if this is something that's going to create value for you or not. Right, because you can just run experiments if it's technology that's doing the heavy lift at the back end, I guess. Yeah, so experimentation, that's a really interesting phrase to bring into this because I think we all know about anecdotally, if we buy something on Amazon or any other online store like that, certainly in the technology space, we will know that from the very moment you hit that site all the way through to transaction and anywhere in between, there's a richness of data points being captured, Mm -hmm. that whole digital footprint that you have there. Um, And with that, of course, all forms of experimentation, split testing, et cetera, micro experimentation at scale can be can be completed. Very difficult to do that at the moment in the physical world. Mm. And that's as much because of the relative narrow scope or lack of richness in data that you have, that it means it's a real big effort to try and do any experimentation. You're going to change the layout of an office. You're going to change the layout of a retail store. You're going to move a piece of machinery around uh, or or in a loading bay or logistics. These are big asks. Mm -hmm. And because normally you have to make those big changes to be able to understand if there's an effect happening. So if you can broaden and widen the spectrum of data points that you're gathering, that actually enables you to go and experiment a lot more. It doesn't mean you will experiment more. That's one of the real interesting things here. And, um, you know, I might be skipping ahead in terms of what we're going to talk about. But Mm. one of the questions I always ask customers when they're saying, well, can you help us detect A, Y or Z? I say, well, maybe. But why? Right. Why? Talk me through that. What's the logic? What's the value? If too much focus a lot of the time is on can you detect something as opposed to what's the value in being able to act upon that detection? Yeah, that's a great point because we do have such a wealth and it's just growing every single day. The amount of data available to us for all kinds of purposes is just going off the chart. And of course, all these um, sensors and computer vision, I mean, that's all providing more and more data points. But you've still got to come back to the core purpose and what problem you're trying to solve. And it might be you know, it, well, it's a whole bunch of things, right? I mean, you talked about the efficiency that's potentially in there. There's also the ability to provide protection and compliance is another interesting one as well. 
Absolutely. I think the term sensory overload obviously comes initially from the human experience of sensory overload. And when a human being has sensory overload, they shut down. Mm -hmm. If you look at an organization or if you look at a team of people, if you provide sensory overload, their ability to engage in effective decision making will shut down. I think the way I try and you don't want to be preachy, but you do want to try and educate with customers and to say, just because you can detect something doesn't mean that you should. And in fact, one of the huge challenges that we see and customers, some customers are very vocal about this. They may not express it this way, but it's alert fatigue. Mm -hmm. It's that thing around sensory overload. And this is one of the things we have as one of our core values is to never generate an alert that lacks meaning. Right. If you get an alert from us, from an every angle application, you should have trust that it's relevant and you should have confidence in the veracity of the information that you, so you can, you can act upon it. If we do that, then we're in a good place. If we don't, we incrementally devalue our proposition to you. Mm. And this is something which uh, you're reminding me, of course, of my smartphone. I'm guessing everybody who's listening (laughs) probably thought of their smartphone notifications at that moment. And it's not so different because you really just can get completely overwhelmed with the sheer number of these things. And it's really about quality rather than quantity, I think. Good to hear that you're really thinking about that. That's really when we think this technology can be used. And what you're touching on really is when you shouldn't use it. Any other thoughts there? Absolutely. There's certain use cases that are quite standard and it's it's easy to appreciate and evaluate if there's value there or not. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the time it's when customers are asking for new things or new challenges that you've not faced before or we would not have a productized application available for. Very simple example here is that you can be asked to solve something with computer vision that can be akin to taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Mm. There can be a much easier way. So, and this is giving a shameless plug for the new Meraki MT sensors. It's just, it's in my mind, right? Because it happened last week. Right, right. We had a customer asking, saying, hey, can you go and detect if our emergency exit doors are propped open? Can you use a computer vision model? Can you build a computer vision model to go and do that? And we said, yes, we could. Or you can just buy an MT sensor that will let you know, a contact sensor, if the door is open or closed. Right. And they're like, oh, okay. And so sometimes, you know, it's about not fitting a square peg into a round hole. Mm -hmm. I think where you don't want to use computer vision is where the relative level of technical effort to deliver the solution entirely outweighs the value add to the business. And so whenever we're evaluating use cases with the customer we normally go through discovery process this is all where they're kind of weird or wonderful use cases we go through discovery process mm. and we plot that out over a technical effort versus business value add matrix and so really what we're looking to look at is in terms of technical effort is it low medium or high to technically deliver it and then in business value is that low medium or high and the obvious place to start is where you've got low technical effort high business value and where you really want to avoid is being in that quadrant where it's high tech effort and low business value because you're never going to build a great ROI there and then I guess the other thing I would say there as well is that there's certain applications where like we have retail customers who would say to us, you know, we want to understand what's happening at every square foot mm. of the store. Right. And we say, no, you don't. We say, no, no, we, we really do. We say, no, 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 you, you really don't. Because in many areas of your premises, these are transit areas. There is no influence on purchase. There's no purchase take taking place. We always look at proximity, presence and engagement when mm. we're thinking around what people are doing in these places. And so... The idea of deploying and investing in a sensor platform when you know there's nothing of interest happening in that area defeats the purpose. I think 
making sure that there's a really good ROI and doing that upfront at the beginning, making sure that you're actually, and this might sound a bit counterintuitive, that you're having to use as few Meraki MV cameras as possible. Mm. I think the other thing as well is being mindful of privacy issues and also if we ever get any sense that something may potentially be being requested for any less than ethically sound purpose we will just steer clear and we have the luxury of being able to do that because there is so much market opportunity out there for applications and outcomes which are you know completely ethically sound Right. And of course, you know, you touched on this earlier. I mean, it's not just around ethics. It's also, frankly, around legislation. And so, you know, you've got to be mindful all the time of this and just trying to do the right thing. I like that thoughtful approach. I mean, at the end of the day, there is definitely real value to be derived here. You know, you've got to get that balance right, as you said, of value to um, to technical effort. And I'm sure there'll be a few people on this uh, who are listening to this podcast who are thinking of examples of things that have been slightly over-engineered from what they actually needed to be. <laughs> you know, those of us who work in technology, we can get a little carried away sometimes. It's true. So good to keep the human element in there and keep it as authentic as we can. Absolutely. I think something else that I'd love to just explore with you quickly is around sort of uh, computer vision and the, some of the myths that, that have grown up around that. We know that there's been this huge hype engine around artificial intelligence and machine learning over the past sort of couple of years, and you, you can hardly go onto a tech website without seeing some reference to that. Maybe you could talk to that a little bit and what your own uh, reflections have been there. Yeah, I think there's somewhere buried deep inside of me, there's a book that has to be written around myth busting, I Mm. think, for computer vision and machine learning. There's certain myths that you encounter and you hear that are more commonly expressed, say, on the customer side of conversations, Mm. and then those that you hear more commonly on, say, the vendor or technology provider side. One of them that's commonly stated by vendors is that you see it on brochure PDFs and you hear people say, you know, well, we use artificial intelligence or we use machine learning. And because we do that, our applications automatically get more intelligent every day. In fact, every hour, you know, and it's just, (laughs) it's just made as this kind of universal statement. And you're thinking, well, people don't automatically get more intelligent every day or every hour. There normally is some effort that's required to put into that, exposing yourself to new information, new knowledge, whatever the case may be. And it's not too bad an analogy for machine learning. Too much emphasis, I think, is made uh, and focused on the model, the computer vision model, when it comes to the applications and what's possible. And far too little emphasis or time and attention is placed on the underlying data set. And it's kind of obvious once you break it down and you explain it to somebody and you say, look, if I take 10 images of a hat And that's what I'm using to train a hat detection model. And each one of those hats is yellow with a red feather in it. Mm. Guess what the model is going to constitute or think it was being a hat? It's going to need to be yellow and have a red feather in it. And if I then go and show a hat that is green, and I'm talking about hats in case George Bentnick's listening here, right? Okay, because everyone, everyone knows about the hats, okay? I'm not saying he's got a yellow hat with a red feather in it, but um, who knows? But the point is the model will be as good as to the reference set of data that it's been exposed to. Mm-hmm. So this idea that a model will automatically get more intelligent, not true unless it's being continuously re-exposed to a more comprehensive and representative data set, that just will not happen. In fact, and here's the kicker, the exact opposite will happen. 
the model will get less accurate and less effective mm. as the ratio from the sample data set to the actual population that it's exposed to gets lower and lower. Really, I, I find myself correcting people saying, no, it won't automatically get more effective, it'll automatically get less effective. And this is where the workload, it's absolutely the non-sexy stuff when it comes to machine learning. It's the maintenance overhead. It's mm. gathering and continuing to gather the data set, having that image pipeline, that data set pipeline, and using that to continually process, train, and refine the model. An example of that, just to put into context, is let's say, for example, you want to go and detect um, tools. Okay, it's like a hardware store. Right. And a model might initially detect, well, here is a hammer, here is a screwdriver. And initially, it may not differentiate between a hand hammer and a sledgehammer, or between a Phillips or a flathead screwdriver. And as you expose it to more data, where you then go through those hard yards of labeling and annotation of the data, you can then help the model differentiate between what these different subcategories of object are. But to, to make the statement that that somehow happens as kind of like magic in a box is just not true. I, I need to get down off my soapbox there. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, great. I mean, I can yeah. see how so much to talk about here. It's a fascinating area. I think it's because it's an area that many of us can relate to, even if we don't work on it directly. It's something that's very relatable, which is pretty awesome. And now I've got this picture of George in his hats in my head. And um, yeah, if you don't know, uh, if you're listening, George is basically our director uh, in charge of our uh, IoT product lines, so um, the cameras and the sensors, and he's a very keen hat wearer. If you search him on Google, you'll quickly find pictures, I'm sure, of him wearing some hat or another. Yeah, so that area is fascinating. I think the other one that's interesting when we think about myth busting is something that we all must have thought about at some point, and that's around this the, the privacy thing again, sort of bringing it back to that. And I know that in certain parts of Europe, you know, it's very common to see a lot of cameras and the, this whole concept of sort of mass surveillance and facial recognition and personally identifiable information this rise of the machine. It's a slightly dystopian future in some ways. So tell us about the way in which you, you address that concern. I think the first thing that I try to do, we try to do, is acknowledge that it's a valid concern. Mm -hmm. Not dismiss it, not try and talk down over it. You know, having a healthy paranoia of the sea tends to keep you alive when you're swimming in it, right? You know, and so I think there's nothing wrong with that. However, that's not a substitute for educating yourself as to some pretty fundamental principles and elements of what we're talking about when it comes to facial recognition, mm. mass surveillance, and how these kind of things work. I think the first thing I would do there is say facial recognition, because it's one of the most widely, say, referenced terms for what people would actually think of in terms of computer vision. Right. That's really an umbrella term. It's an umbrella term that means a whole set of different things. Most commonly, what it breaks down is as facial analysis and facial comparison. And facial analysis uh, at least our interpretation of facial analysis, is that it should always be anonymous analysis of faces, where what you're doing is you're simply using facial measurements with the nose, distance between eyes, et cetera, and you're using this as a means of estimating whether an object you're classifying as a human being is male or female of a certain age range, wearing objects like glasses or, or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. You're not capturing any personally identifiable information. Right. It's anonymous. Right. You're not saying this is David Owens and the fifth time this week David Owens has returned into this space or place. As opposed to facial 
comparison. Most people think of this as kind of minority report with Tom Cruise, right? Mm. But in that, you know, if you're looking at where we've seen real requests for this is, for example, when construction sites were opened back up first after lockdown, there was a lot of requests for having contactless entry into construction sites where you wouldn't even use a proximity card, you could just be identified. And so that requires having a profile picture, like a passport style picture of somebody, and then comparing that with the image that's captured from the face. Mm -hmm. Now, there are real data privacy implications from that. And there are certain jurisdictions in the world that will just say no, irrespective of what the use case is. And I would argue that that is a little constrained in the logic that's applied there. Mm -hmm. The reason being, and our view on this is where we can see potential merit in application is where facial recognition could be used to help prevent serious injury or loss of life. We have a customer who approached us about this specifically regards to personal protective equipment detection. And they had an individual who was working at height on a roof in high winds. They weren't wearing their safety harness. And unfortunately, they were literally blown off the roof and they lost their life. The thing about that is if you inspect every single individual entering that site to see are they wearing a safety harness, less than 2% of construction workers there need to wear that safety harness. Mm. So what's going to happen? You're going to get 98% false alerts, gets back to what we spoke around right. alert fatigue. Yeah, yeah. So and all I'm saying is there's an argument. I'm not saying you know it should be deployed today, but there's an argument to say, well, if I, as somebody who's wearing this harness, say, yes, I would like you to remind me if I'm not wearing this equipment, and that's for my own personal safety, and I can opt into that, then I don't see it being in and of itself a negative that an organization might offer that option to that employee. Mandating it, is another matter. And then there's also another really interesting scenario with a customer working within Australia where a certain state in Australia are actually introducing mandatory facial recognition for gaming rooms in bars to help enforce legislation that's been enacted for gambling addicts who have self-barred, wow. wow. self-prohibited themselves. Mm. So it's not black and white. There's a thousand shades of grey yeah, uh, in, in, in here. Yeah, and that's really where, of course, this whole sort of ethics and doing the right thing, it's not the technology that's inherently bad. And that's the thing I think I always come back to. It is really about using it in a positive way to address, uh, as you said, I mean, life-saving situations. That's obviously, nobody's going to argue with that. So it's clearly a much more positive way to look at things. And how do you see this technology developing from here? What's your sort of human vision, your David vision looking forward <laughs> David Vision, I've go. got, got a patent that uh, or a copyright that. I think what that ties into a little bit is, and one of the criticisms I would have, right, in general of technology providers in the computer vision space, because I think we have a collective responsibility here, is that we tend to give the impression and set the expectation with customers, even if it's customers who are inferring this and we're just not actively correcting them enough. Mm. Customers tend to assume that it's possible to deliver far more than can in reality be delivered on day one. But equally, they tend to underestimate what it is possible to deliver after a period of a couple of months or even a year. And that gets back to my model versus data set point, which I touched on earlier on. Right. Broadly speaking, like to give people an idea, we'd have an application that, say for retail, detects people walking in and will count the number of people and tell you their 
age and gender and emotional state. Another one that will detect suspicious persons. Are they carrying weapons? Are they, you know, concealing their face or things like face mask detection mm. or things like this. Now, what you can expect there from these type of applications on day one is richer data about what's happening the kind of richness that a human being would see with their eyes mm. and being able to have automated anomaly detection. In other words, tell me if somebody enters and they're carrying something which in the context of the environment they're in is probably not good. In other words, somebody carrying a hammer into a hardware store, it's probably okay. Carrying it into you know, a grocery store, Mm, not so much so, right. particularly if you're able to place that around certain hours of the day and, and so on. Yeah. Medium term, moving out beyond that, I think that as you actually deploy these applications, one of the upshots is that as you gather data and you're analyzing that data, you are then in so doing, if you do it right, you're also collecting a broader data set, which you can then analyze for patterns, for augmented understanding. So it's not just this more simplistic binary, tell me if something is or isn't present. It's tell me what is changing, what mm. is shifting. But that's still very much then with the view to allowing the human being to make a more data-driven decision. Automating certain mundane tasks, like for example, an individual not wearing a high visibility vest, right, walking into, I don't know, a, a warehouse or a distribution center, you could automate that by actually integrating with the door access control system and denying them access. That's one thing you could do. But what you're not doing there is, which is where I think the potential is in the longer term, is actually about providing net new intelligence net new comprehension, actually surfacing insights about what is happening in an environment that a human being would not be able to do themselves within a reasonable period of time mm. with reasonable effort and with reasonable cost. We're two years kind of plus away from that. And I think everything else is very much in the realm of kind of now to 18 months or so. It's something which I've noticed in different areas of this technology where it's really a lot around building confidence in a high quality understanding on the computer vision side of things. I'm thinking there, I guess, about autonomous vehicles, for example. We as humans need to have a lot of confidence in that technology before we let them loose widely on the roads. And of course, that is starting to happen. Fascinating technology, but it is very much down to having that sort of high quality data and us as humans building confidence in it. It's possible. This might sound strange. It's possible. Sometimes the optimum value mix is to have certain models, multiple models that are working, computer vision models, some of which you would classify as core models need to deliver basic functions, but they need to be very, very accurate. Mm. And then other models can be less accurate, but you're widening the scope of data richness that you're capturing. So what I mean by that is if you take Tesla as an example, and people think Tesla is autonomous cars, so you've got multiple computer vision models working in the Tesla's cars. And the primary one, right, is around driver safety. Mm. But you've then got secondary models which are reading road signs and interpreting road signs and using optical character recognition at distance right. to be able to interpret, well, what's the speed limit here? Now, the analogy I give for that in terms of human beings is, imagine you've got four people in the car You've got the driver and their responsibility is to look at if there's any oncoming traffic, monitor their speed. You have another person who's looking at the rear view. Is there any car getting closer? Another one who's looking uh, constantly at road signs, et cetera. Mm. 
what you're doing there is broadening the richness of data. You don't need the person who is performing a secondary, less important model to be as accurate. The value is you're actually getting exposed to those additional data points that you otherwise wouldn't have. And where we've seen this in a retail context quite a lot is you have customers who've been using very sedentary traditional footfall counting technology, infrared beams, pressure mats, things like this, which they do a very, very basic job, but they've been around such a long time. They actually do it very well in terms of tell me has the person entered or not. Great. And you can get high, high 90s in terms of accuracy rates for that. But if you then go and say, okay, well, if we build you a computer vision model that, for example, maybe only delivers, say, 85% accuracy because of the particular environmental conditions, poor lighting or whatever the case may be. But we're not just giving you one data point around entry or exit. We're telling you, are individuals entering? Are couples entering? Are they children? Are they adults? Are they family? Breaking down gender, age, giving you sentiment analysis based upon how their emotions are changing. If you ask the question, what is actually giving you a more accurate picture there? All of those data points combined or just the one data point that's giving you maybe an additional 10 points of accuracy? Mm. It's fascinating. When you start to break it down like this, you really start to understand the finer points and how it can all build up together to just really, and I love this term, augmented understanding. I think really just uh, helping us get beyond what humans can realistically achieve in a given period of time. It's a really exciting way to put it. And you touched on retail there. I think I'd love to walk through, and this is, of course, the fun part, is is walking through some of these real-world applications for your technology and the sort of realm of computer vision generally. So maybe if you'd like to pick out a couple, which would you go for? Like, Which would be your highlight uh, examples? So this is where I get to kind of do the shameless sales pitch, right? Or, uh, for, <laughs> if for, you for like. The I mean, no, we're, we're I, all no, interested no, to hear it, I'm sure. I've been giving my sales pitch all along. No, no, I'm joking. I, I think, yeah, so in retail, where we start off in retail, the grounding point is what's the purpose of the store or the place, if it's hospitality or whatever the case may be? What is the purpose of it? And if that purpose is not around experience, then really all you have is probably the most expensive form of distribution model. And because if you can buy it online and you're not adding anything additional there, then why have it? And I think when you have a look at what was happening to brick and mortar retail pre-COVID, that tells its own story. So if you agree with my position that the purpose should be around experience, well, then you need to be able to measure experience. Mm -hmm. And so how do you measure experience? Well, the first thing is you need to know who's coming in. Really what I'd say is think around the type of richness of data you can get from even a basic online shop. You know, you can set something up with Shopify selling T-shirts, right? And, And the profile information that you get if somebody signs in, you know, to their account with, you know, Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. So our next generation footfall application that we built was, I'm not joking, the motivation here was we said, how is it that a teenager in their bedroom can set up an online shop on Shopify and know more around the profile and behavior of their customers than a multi-million dollar brick wow. and mortar retailer? Amazing point. Yeah. So is there something we can do about that? And, you know, you always try and find causes that you can kind of align yourself to when you're a startup to help build engagement. And we thought, well helping retail fight back and we thought well how can we do that and said well it has to be around experience so what the next generation footfall or ngf app does is even just on a single meraki camera mv camera at the entrance it will eliminate the need for any of that traditional footfall counting tech it will count the number of people coming in it will break it down by age in terms of specific age ranges generation give you gender split it will give you that emotional 
sentiment analysis that I mentioned, we mm-hmm. actually capture 16 different emotions, but that's too much to really digest. So we condense it into just three categories, positive, negative, and neutral. We like to call it our computer vision net promoter score. That's useful. That's interesting. But it's when you start doing that at scale. If you have 100 locations, and if you take that information and you then overlay time series analysis, how is that changing by hour of day, day of week? And then you also record venue information. If it's a retail store, for example, is it on the main street? Is it in a shopping mall? Is it a pop-up store? How long has it been opened? When was the manager hired in there? One of the interesting things we've seen is the change in behavior and sentiment levels in store is generally speaking a good precursor of when management staff quite shortly thereafter tend to hand in their notice. You see these antecedent behaviors happening. Another really good one for retail, generally speaking, space anywhere, whether that's office space or industrial, is what we call our physical density control application. This has very topical applications in terms of return to work challenges or business resiliency in terms Mm -hmm. of COVID. It's around knowing how many people are in a space setting a maximum safe occupancy and then reporting on that. And that's current right now, but understanding how many people are in a space and what they're doing there. Back to that idea of presence, proximity and engagement. That has always been of relevance when it comes to customers and it will always be of relevance, even hopefully after we're no longer having to be as focused as we currently are on COVID. So essentially what that does is captures images from multiple different cameras. It stitches those together and it lets you understand how many people are in a space overall. And those two things combine that next generation footfall and physical density control. That's all day one stuff. You can literally turn that on with a couple of minutes and it can be quite extraordinary. The funny example, if you indulge me for one moment there, is we deployed these to a women's plus size fashion retailer uh, some months ago. And the management, the ops manager there, after the first week of deploying these, we were reporting that 64% of entrances were male. And the ops manager, he laughed out loud at us on the review call. He said, we not say we're a women's plus size fashion retailer. And of course, the great thing around MV is unlike, say, traditional infrared beam counters, there is a video sensor. So you're able to go back and replay the footage Mm. and do a manual accuracy count and compare that with the machine count. Lo and behold, 64% of entrances were male. Turns out these were men when you replayed, it was obvious these were men trying to buy holiday gifts for family members, spouses, etc. It was an upswing. This didn't normally happen, but not a single thing about how the stores were merchandised or laid out made it easier for a man to come in right. and shop. And I almost felt apologetic for her own sex because you saw men coming in like headless chickens, like looking around and then walking back out. Staff had been told for years your customers are not males. It was like the men were invisible. I know we argue to our wives that we feel invisible a lot of the time, but they actually were invisible. And we all had a good laugh about this on the call until I said to the customer, how much money do you think is walking out of your store that should be in your cash register? Yeah. And it's a deadly silence. And they've done simple things now, some of which I really like. Their staff now wear, in some of their locations, they have like t-shirts on that say, we help men too. (laughs) simple things like that so but that shows you how even just one data point that's highly relevant and in context can have huge benefit sometimes we miss the value and the complexity and things don't have to be super sophisticated to be highly valuable right i mean it's amazing that's where this gets 
interesting is really when you relate it to these human experiences. My guess is there's a few people listening to this who who may have had a similar experience. Maybe they've gone gift buying and they're in headless chicken mode, to use your term. I think um, <laughs> I can definitely remember one or two instances like that. So, But it's amazing how you can use the technology to basically point this seemingly obvious thing out to a retailer so that they can sort of move things in a positive direction and grow the experience for all their potential customers. So retail is obviously a very popular one. And of course, this year, there's you touched on this as well, the sort of safe occupation occupancy levels. It's a huge one. And we've actually talked about that uh, previously on the podcast as well. So we know that that's a, a real use case that's out there right now. What other ones would you pick out from different um, verticals that you've been involved in? Yeah, well, I think the interesting thing is to say, for example, even on carpeted office space or commercial office space, because that's where an awful lot of focus around business resiliency. And if you kind of break that down, certainly in terms of Cisco's approach about remote workers and then return to work into the office. Mm. Incidentally, everything I've been describing here, don't think of this as a collection of segregated point solutions. When we're talking about deploying one of these smart cameras over an entrance, we're saying you can use that same camera for your augmented audience analysis for face mask detection, for suspicious person detection, for all of these different workloads. It's a multi-outcome platform. And in fact, that's how you ensure that you get a really, really good ROI. You're putting in place a sensor platform to deliver outcomes, some of which you have certainty around now because you know they're relevant, like COVID-related applications, Others, which we don't even know yet, but it's by putting that platform in place. For example, in an office environment, if you put in these cameras, which are multi-sensor devices, right, because the MV cameras have microphones, light sensors, Bluetooth low energy radios, and we extract data from all of those to bring into the models for analysis. When you put this platform in place, Sure, right now that might be around safe occupancy, but equally, even before COVID, we had industrial customers who you know, might have a mixed use environment, some of its office space, some of its production, some lone worker situations, mm-hmm. and regarding emergency events or evacuation, the number of customers out there who still use you know, manual sign-in sheets for how many people are in the building, they may know there's still 10 people in the building. They've no notion where they are in the building. And one of the challenges is that if you're using something like beaconing off devices or so on, that's telling you where devices are. It's not telling you where people are. Exactly. Um, Often that's a subtle difference, but it can be a critical one in certain situations. So I think that whole idea of looking upon this as a platform for multiple outcomes is what really gives you investment protection. I think other areas which are going to be huge in terms of advancements made over the course of the next 12 months plus is certainly in industrial. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by industrial, I mean manufacturing, warehousing, logistics in particular. And we're doing an awful lot of work at the moment around capabilities like optical character recognition at distance. So it's really, it's a fancy way of doing what your multifunction printer, your scanner has done for years, right? Except what we're doing here is taking images. These could be of containers, they could be of pallets, they could be of machines and what we're doing is analyzing those converting them for machine readable text and whether that's around being able to track pallets as we're doing for the largest chocolate factory in europe at the moment which is around traceability of ingredients or whether it's around advanced loss prevention as we have for another customer who's a big wine distributor who incidentally 
they breathalyze staff when they start their shift <laughs> and when they end to make sure they've not drunk any of the product during their shift. Right. Anyway, that's another story. And then I think there's also probably a little bit further out, but we're doing some work with some advanced manufacturing facilities around human robot interaction, assisted production. That's very interesting where you're looking at what can be manual processes at the moment in terms of quality assurance. So taking, you know, maybe five or 10% of part finished product, having human beings inspect that to make sure they fit within conformance levels. And if they fall outside of that, they're then rejected. The problem with those kind of scenarios, if you're talking about like OEM uh, manufacturers, there's a vehicle manufacturer we work with and they get parts from lots of different suppliers. What can happen is, you know, if a small percentage are outside of those tolerances, the whole batch can be rejected. Right. You can't ever scalably, cost-effectively inspect each finished part if a human's doing it. But if you're using computer vision where you have a robot placing an item on a measurement table, inspecting it and doing so on and so forth, you then actually can start to go after that. Mm-hmm. And then I think the third, well, there's loads of areas, but the last one I touch on is probably around IoT data triangulation. What I mean by that is if you look at the explosion that's happening in IoT and sensors, if you go back to our example, right, for the Meraki MT sensors there in terms of the contact sensor, it's a really good example. You could have in a warehouse area, high value goods in a cage, and you can have place a contact sensor on that to say, is it open or closed? Now, what we have seen from the interactions we've had with customers is that particularly where you've got access control, 90 to 92% plus of all entrances into high security areas actually are from individuals who are meant to be there or authorized to be there at that time. So if you generate an alert saying, hey, a door is opened and 92% of the time it's a false alarm, alert fatigue. And people are going to start disregarding that and they'll miss the 8% they should look at. So taking something like a contact sensor to trigger image analysis to then say, has that person walked in not carrying an object and have they left carrying one? Or has one person badged in but have two people entered? So a more sophisticated, mm. granular level of anomaly detection. I'll stop there, otherwise I'll just keep on talking. Well, I mean, it's just illustrative of how when you actually start thinking about this, there are so many different real-world use cases where you can see this technology providing support, helping, and potentially saving money and even lives. So it's an amazing area to sort of start digging into in a bit more detail. My guess is that over the course of this last year, um, you know, you've been thinking about all of these potential applications. I'm going to guess that there must be some interesting stories, maybe fun uh, creative uses for the technology. Have you got anything there? Yes, some of which I can talk about now, others (laughs) of which is definitely would have to be after the watershed, right? Or everyone listening would have to sign an NDA or something like that. Uh, Just because we've spoken about retail, we had a customer who was, and it is fantastic, right? You see customers, they start getting so excited when you start talking around these things. And one customer said, that's fantastic. Yes, okay, we want to do all of those things. Plus, we also need to detect how much money people have in their pockets when they're walking in the door. (laughs) (laughs) you know we very politely had to say there is no x-ray machine that is built into the mv cameras so that's not something that we're going to be able to do for you and they're like oh right okay yes yes of course we've also had this is one that's well known internally in every angle we have had a large hotelier asked us if we could detect 
pets being smuggled in handbags <laughs> into rooms. And apparently this is a large problem for them because they, you know, other than guide dogs, etc., most hotelers obviously don't want them in. And, and I was, mm. you know, asking them, saying, well, what's the real issue there? You know, why is this such an issue? And they were saying it's furniture in the room actually kind of being eaten, basically. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And let me see, can I think of something, because that's retail, that's hospitality. Banks, that's mm. another government, banks. So in the UK, the common or most common method for trying to steal from an ATM machine, from a retail bank, is basically reversing a truck into it and kind of hooking it and trying to rip it out of the right. wall. In Germany, the more common approach, the newer approach in the past kind of 12 to 18 months has been around trying to actually blow the ATMs up. <laughs> Right. And typically this is in kind of ATM lobbies, you know, that might be segregated away from the retail bank. There could be, you know, two or three of the ATMs and the different parties involved whose approaches on this. They've told us that that methodology is highly ineffective at extracting cash from the ATM, wow. but it is extremely effective at completely destroying the ATM retail right. lobby. You know, the whole place has to be kind of rebuilt. And so while the x-ray vision for retail is not a runner, detecting animals in handbags, uh, look, if we thought there was enough business value in it, it's probably possible. The exploding ATMs actually is a good example of what is actually a really good fit because you have very regimented, controlled and standardized environments. Mm -hmm. In a given retail bank, one ATM lobby is likely to look very, very similar to another. True. And so spotting anomalous objects by using image comparison is actually very, very achievable. So out of those kind of funny stories, the exploding, maybe we'll call it anti-exploding ATM app or so. I don't, we need to come up with a catchier name, but I think there's, there's probably something to that. It sounds like it needs an acronym. That's what we normally do in this game, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of the longer and more convoluted, the better. Right. I feel like we could go on forever. We're talking about this stuff. It has so many potential ways in which you could apply it. And uh, it's been fascinating listening to this. I wonder if we could maybe, uh, before we wrap up, just look at how people can get started, firstly with Meraki, but of course also with your own business. So what are your own approaches to bringing customers on board? Yeah, and thank you for wrapping things up because yeah, otherwise <laughs> I would just go on. <laughs> that's been my approach. I think that's why I've gotten so many people in Meraki to actually work with us because they know if they don't say yes, I'm just going to keep on haranguing them. So I think in terms of how to get started, I made the point earlier on about trying to ease friction and keep things simple. So we've made a very deliberate decision to, in a good way, mimic and replicate the commercial model that Meraki has and how a customer would engage with Meraki. So if you're an existing Meraki customer and you're familiar with how Meraki works, you will find there's no additional learning as regards every angle. Mm. What I mean by that is our licensing model is identical. We offer the same, you know, licensing in terms of kind of one, three year terms. We only have two license types, a single app and a multi-app license. It's really, really simple. And we offer the exact same C try buy program that Meraki do. And I think that's one of the stellar standout aspects of Meraki in that whether you're an existing Meraki customer and you don't have any MV cameras or you're a net new customer and you're interested in cameras, you can get Meraki cameras on a free trial for two weeks. There's no cost 
Meraki even pay the shipping out and also for collection. And what we do in every angle is we honor the exact same terms. So you can take any of our applications, take them for a test drive for two weeks. There's no charge in that. And again, it's just about collectively in partnership with Meraki trying to put value in the customer's hands as quickly and as effortlessly as possible. Fascinating. And so I think that's an approach that's worked super well for us, obviously. We can talk about this technology all day, but what we want to do is get it into people's hands so they can try it out for themselves. What about this journey with getting started with Meraki? So folks who might be interested in following this entrepreneurial path that you've taken, I know you liked that term, you know, what would you recommend or how do they get started? Two things I should have said just in terms of that C-Try Buy program for, for a customer, for example. There's two obvious resources there I would encourage you to visit. The first is the Meraki Marketplace, which is apps.meraki.com. .io. And the second is our website, everyangle.ie. Mm-hmm. And I think what you'll find on the Meraki Marketplace is a whole wealth of different technology partners. And then equally on the Every Angle website, what you'll find is further information and resources around the computer vision applications that we offer. So that's for customers. I think for any prospective technology partners, for anyone out there who has an idea and you're thinking, you know, I wonder, should I approach Meraki about this? I would say engage early and engage deeply. What we did just to kind of put an ending uh, on on the story was Mm. before we even had a name for the business, before we even had a product for the business, We reached out to a couple of people in Meraki, asked who might be interested, gave them a real broad idea of the type of thing we were looking to do. And we basically set up a a collaboration space and we said, listen, it was almost like a dear diary. We wrote in a digest there pretty much on a daily basis. Here's what we're thinking about. Here's how our planning has changed. Mm. And we just invited people to share and contribute. And we didn't know how that would work out. We didn't know if it would fall flat in its face. And you know what? There was no end to the glorious surprises that I got in terms of people going out of their way just to actually contribute a good idea, give feedback when they just didn't have to. And it absolutely reaffirmed my belief in all that is good in humanity. So I would encourage anyone to adopt a a similar approach. Really found this a very interesting conversation, David. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out to um, to join us today. I'm sure people who who are listening to the podcast will be thinking through all these different potential opportunities for this technology uh, ways in which it can be used whether they're thinking about the computer vision or whether they're thinking about you know the whole sort of process of getting on board as a technology partner themselves so i just want to thank you so much and it has been a long session but it's been a fascinating one so it's i'm very very happy that we took the time to go through this talking about it from a, a kind of a theoretical almost philosophical perspective as well as the exact uh, use cases so thank you very much david my pleasure simon thank you very much thank you everyone for listening Awesome. Well, okay, everybody, thank you again for joining us. And uh, obviously, it's still tough out there. So please do stay safe. Uh, But keep listening to the Meraki podcast. We will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. And we very much look forward to welcome you then. So bye for now. 